0: John chapter 18. I'm sorry. Job chapter 18. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, see? at least You pay attention. Job chapter 18. And as you turn to Job chapter 18, I'm going to read to you a series of verses in the book of Ephesians that will set the tone for our time in discussion in Job chapter 18. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4 reads this way. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification you. Now these verses set the tone for Job chapter 18. You'll notice that there are verses specifically about communication and conversation. And sandwiched in between those verses is a command "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And there's a reason for that. You know, when God gave us His word, He didn't just throw it out there and hope that things would land in the proper place. No, He has them there in a proper place for a specific reason. So, when it talks about the conversations that we have with one another and the words that we use, in between there is a command that says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That tells us that the Holy Spirit's a person third person of the triune nature of God himself. But it also tells us that we can grieve, we can cause pain, we can cause sorrow to the Holy Spirit. And the question comes, how do we do that? It happens by the words we choose to use and the attitude behind those words. Why is that? Simply because our conversation is the clearest indicator of our spiritual condition. Very important. Socrates said these words. Speak, friend, that I may see you. Speak, friend, that I may know you. He was right. In Isaiah 6, verse number 5. It was Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. Why did he say that? Why couldn't he say, I'm a man with an unclean heart, and the people I dwell with have unclean hearts? Isaiah didn't say that. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why? Because the words that we use truly are the clearest indicator of our spiritual condition. The words we use show us the condition of our heart. That's why the Bible says in Matthew 12, verse number 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 37 says, By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. In Romans 3, it says, Their throat, speaking of the unbeliever, is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul is discussing the depravity of man, looking at the conversation of a man. Because from the heart, a man speaks. Did you know, maybe you didn't, that you speak on average of 18,000 words a day? It's equivalent to a 54-page book. Every day. Some of us a little bit more than others, but on average, 18,000 words a day. In a year, you will speak 66 volumes, each volume being 800 pages long. In other words, in your lifetime, One-fifth of it will be spent in speaking. One-fifth of your entire life is spent talking, speaking, commanding, using your words. The clearest illustration of this is the Apostle Peter. Peter, as you know, would... As the Bible says, follow Christ from a distance, Mark 14 tells us. It's always bad to follow Christ from a distance. If you're going to follow Christ, you follow him up close, right? But Peter would follow at a distance. And because he followed at a distance, it would cost him greatly. So the Bible says these words in Matthew chapter 26, verse number 69. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk, Gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. No one dare associate Peter with Jesus after he began to curse and swear. Because followers of Jesus don't talk that way. Oh, your accent's giving you away. Oh, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, you were with the Galilean. We saw you. So how do I get you to believe that I am not one of his? To speak in such a way that you'll never be confused that I'm one of his. And no one ever confused that again until, of course, the book of Acts. But there he's filled with the Spirit of God and was used in a great and mighty way. We forget about the power of words. We forget about how we use our words. And Peter becomes the quintessential illustration of the spiritual condition of a man and how our words are used in such a way to show that we're a follower of Christ or we're not a follower of Christ. So we grieve the Spirit of God when there's bitterness and Anger and clamor, slander. We use unwholesome words. The Talmud says this, I thought was quite interesting. The righteous need no tombstones, for their words are their monuments. That's profound. The righteous don't need a tombstone. Because the words they have spoken throughout their entire life mark the character and the condition of that individual. So Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. It's where we get the the English word rotten. Right? That which is rotten is worthless and useless. So don't let any worthless word, any useless word, any rotten word proceed from your mouth. Now, I'm sure that a lot of you have fruit baskets in your house, and you put fruit in them. And every once in a while, you leave them there a little too long. And they begin to rot. Sometimes they get white spots on them. Sometimes they get brown spots. But if you leave them there too long, they begin to ooze all kinds of gunk, right? And you pick it up, and it's really mushy. And then it begins to infect all the other fruit in the basket. And in the bottom, you have this little syrupy kind of... Nasty stuff that's there. Maybe you guys are cleaner than I am. I don't know. But that's just what happens. You don't want to eat it. You don't want to touch it. You want to get rid of it, right? Because it smells. It's rotten. It's good for nothing. That's the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, verse number 29. Let no rotten word, no filthy, useless, worthless word proceed out of your mouth. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 141, and verse number 3, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Wouldn't that be a great prayer to pray every day? A great prayer to pray before you ever engage in a conversation with somebody. O oh Lord, set a watch over my mouth and a and, and keep watch over the door of my lips. Colossians 3.8 says, But now you also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Ephesians 5 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint's, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. Paul says, look, make sure, if you, you, the command is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, the way you do that is make sure that there's nothing rotten that comes out of your mouth. Nothing that's useless or worthless because it's rotten. It's filthy. But that which is edifying, that which builds up, that which lifts up, right? That which strengthens, So instead of words coming out of your mouth that are worthless and useless, use words that are fruitful for somebody else to lift them up, to build them up. So, moms, today as you talk to your children, were the words unwholesome words or were they edifying words? Were you building your children up or were you tearing them down? Were you lifting them higher or ripping them apart, right? Or oh, how about your marriage? Let's say your husband forgot Valentine's Day yesterday. What were your words like? Were they unwholesome words? Were they corrupt words? Were they worthless words? Or did you use that opportunity, because he forgot Valentine's, to build him up and lift him up anyway? See? See? We forget that all of our conversations speak loudly about the spiritual condition of our heart. So Paul says, don't let the unwholesome word come out, but words that are edifying, words that are necessary, that they might minister grace to those who hear them. So think about your conversations today. Did it minister grace? Did it it bless the person who heard you today? I mean, think about this. This one verse will revolutionize your marriage. Just this one verse will revolutionize the way you interact in your family. Oh, by the way, it will revolutionize our church. Think about that. Maybe we should put that on the door frame before we leave every Sunday morning. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth as you proceed from these premises. Maybe that would be a good reminder for all of us, right? Because if so, there's going to be the grieving of the Spirit of God. And we don't want to grieve God's Spirit. He dwells within us, right? In fact, He dwells in the heart. So when you use use words that are unprofitable, that are filthy, that are useless words, what you're doing is saying they're coming from the location where the Spirit of God has taken up residence in my heart. They're to be holy words because he's the Holy Spirit. They're to be pure words because he is sanctified, pure, and set apart. And if he lives and reigns within my heart, then the words that come out of my heart through my mouth, the mouth gate, should be pure and holy words. And so he says very clearly that all bitterness, bitterness, That smoldering resentment, which causes you to brood and hold grudges. Now I know that's none of you guys in here tonight. Those are the people that didn't come tonight. That's not you guys, right? We we don't stew and and sit and brood over conversations or situations that, that will cause me to be bitter. You're not that way, are you? Of course not. Paul, as he writes to these believers, wants them to understand, you've got to put away your bitterness. It's on Hebrews 12, a few weeks ago, that a root of bitterness defiles many. Not just one, not just two. It defiles many. So if you, uh, you, you're a bitter person, and you begin to sit in your situation and think about revenge and think about how you can get back and how you can get even and, and just just begin to snarl on the inside. You're going to defile everybody around you. Why? Because see that's what rotten fruit does. It defiles all the other fruit in the basket, doesn't it? Leave all the fruit in there long enough. Guess what? It's all going to be rotten. None of it's going to be worth eating. It's all going to be worthless. So if you have a bitter attitude, guess what? Husband gets it, son gets it, daughter gets it, right? How many of you go home after church on Sunday and just fillet the people you saw Sunday morning on church? At church. Just fillet them. Maybe you fillet the pastor. I don't know. Maybe you fillet the ushers or the greeters or the parking lot people. Maybe you go home and say, Do you know what he do you know where he made me park? I don't want to park there ever again. How dare he tell me where to park? Or how dare he tell me where to sit? Speaking of an usher or parking lot attendant guy, right? But we find it very easy to go home and sit around the table and begin to talk about our conversations at church. And we find it very easy just to fillet and shred and, and rip apart people. See, Pastor, where are you going? Hold on. Hold on. You're going to see it all unfold right before your eyes. That bitterness? How about this? Wrath. That's wild rage. Do you have wild rage? Do you have wrath? Do you blow your stack? And start throwing things around? Nah, not not you guys. How about this anger? That's that settled inward resentment. And then there's clamor, that's violent outburst. And then there's evil speaking, whispering, and slanderous. And then there's kakia, malice general form, a general word used for all kinds of evil, evil words. Those are all a definition of what's unwholesome. Those are the things that grieve the Spirit of God. Listen, if you you just keep that in mind, the things that come out of my mouth are going to grieve God's Spirit or not grieve His Spirit, please His Spirit. If they're pleasing to the Lord, they'll be pleasing to the one that I'm speaking to. If it's not pleasing to the Lord, chances are it's going to tear to shreds the people I'm speaking to. And it reveals the condition of my spiritual life. Instead, he says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness is to be the quality of our words. So, why do we say that? Because you see, this was the intention. Of the three friends of Job. This was their intention. How do we know that? Well, got to go back to Job chapter 2. So if you got your Bible, turn back to Job chapter 2. For those of you still in Job 18, put your finger there. If you're in John 18, that was my mistake. My bad. <clears throat> Remember Job chapter 2, verse number 11? Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. The and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. They had a purpose. They made an appointment. Hey, guys, we got to get together we got to go see Job. we got to figure out how we can sympathize with Job. They, they'd heard everything that had taken place, right? They So they weren't there when the fire came down out of heaven. They weren't there when when the armies came and, and destroyed uh, and killed his, his family. They, they weren't there when, when Job received this affliction from Satan. They weren't there for all that. But they heard about it. I mean, after all, he's the greatest man in the East, right? If something happens to the greatest man of the East... Word gets out. Now, word probably didn't get out right away because they couldn't text their friends or email their friends. There was no phone calls to be made. It was by word of mouth. But by the time they they received the information, they said, we're going to make an appointment. We're going to go see our friend because we had to comfort him. We had to sympathize with him. So it says, verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. They didn't know how bad it was. But when they saw him, when they're able to put their eyes on the man's condition, with all the open sores, oozing with pus, with a head shaved and, and scratchy and, and itchy, sitting there in an in a ash heap, all by himself, with nobody else around. They saw him from a distance. All they could say was, whoa, we didn't expect this. This was nothing like I thought it was going to be. We had heard some things about what he had lost. We had heard about his health, but oh, my word, I can't believe how he looks. He looks horrible. He began to weep. And they began to tear their robes out of mourning for their friend. Because they were coming to sympathize with him, to to comfort him. That's what they wanted to do. Verse 13. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was was very great. I I wish we could just stop right there. We can't because we're going through all the conversations, right? But what changed? What happened? My man, Zophar, Bildad, Eliphaz. Guys, what, what changed? Sitting there for seven days and seven nights, did you sleep? Did you not sleep? Were you awake the whole time? We know you didn't say anything. You just sat there. And this was the best thing you could do at the time. And you came to sympathize. You're doing that. You came to comfort. Well, you haven't used your words yet, so you haven't comforted him yet. But you're trying to be there to be a support to him because no one else is. No other friends are there. His wife isn't there. So you came at the right time for the right motive, to say the right things, to do the right things. But all of a sudden, all that changed. They went from wanting to comfort him to condemning him. They they, they came to build him up and began to rip him to shreds they came and began to speak unwholesome words to Job. And they didn't even think twice about it. In fact, the conversations began to grow with more and more intensity as time went on. So when you come to Job chapter 18, you have Bildad. And Bildad is, is brutal, to say the least. So brutal, he concludes by saying, Job, You're like everybody else. You just don't know God. What kind of statement is that? That's definitely an unwholesome word. That's definitely not something Job needs to hear at this point, especially because he's the greatest man in the East, or by the Lord's words, on the planet, and he is upright, God-fearing, right, turning away from evil. That's who he is. So they begin to open their mouth and begin to speak, and by the time we come to chapter 18, now you know why we had the introduction that we did. There wasn't tenderness, kindness, forgiveness. There was anger, malice, bitterness, outrage. That they wouldn't see it his, their way. That Job somehow was, was blinded to the reality of what was happening in his life. That Job was a wicked, wicked, evil man. And if he would just repent, he'd be okay. And because you don't repent, we've got to keep hammering you with the fact that you are wretched, that you're a sinner, where you're going to go because you're a sinner, and we're going to hammer you until you can't even lift your eyes again. They came to comfort him. They came to sympathize with him. They saw him and were taken way back. Because he looked so much worse than they could ever conjure up in their minds. And now, and now, they got to help him see why he is the way he is. It's very simple. You're wicked. You're hiding your sin. It's caught up to you. You need to repent. And Job says, I don't think so. And they said, yeah, take it from us, Job. That's the way it is. And Job says, no, I don't agree. You guys, in my mind, are not very wise at all. And that sent Bildad off the deep end. So, three points, Bildad attacks, Bildad accuses, and then Bildad's argument. Versus one to four are his attack. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. In other words, you have no understanding, Job. It's your fault we're 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 at an impasse here, Job. It's you. You don't have understanding, Job. You keep hunting for more words. You keep wanting to speak, say things that aren't true. But simply, Job, you just don't understand what's happening. We do, you don't. Why are we regarded as beasts and stupid in your eyes? Well, you've read it. You know why. Why do you treat us like beasts, like we're trying to shred you apart? Because that's what you're doing. You're just tearing them apart with your words. Why do you say we're, we're stupid, Job? See, I think that Bildad was offended. I think Bildad was what, what, what took what Job said personally. You see, he couldn't he couldn't see the agony and the misery and the pain in Job. He could only hear and see what he wanted to hear and see. And as soon as Job said that you guys aren't as wise as you think you are, back in chapter 17, he calls them all miserable comforters, tells them they are are worthless physicians, Bildad's offended. I mean, after all, we came all this way. We made an appointment. We got together. And we came here for you, Job, and that's how you're going to speak to us? I don't think so, Job. I'm not going to let you get away with that one. Oh, you, verse 4, who tear yourself in your anger, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned. In other words, they see Job as angry. Now, Job wasn't angry. Job probably was intense. He speaks with intensity. He speaks with passion. I mean, he's the one in pain, right? He's the one who's lost everything. He has nothing. And so when he speaks, he's going to speak with some kind of intensity and passion about his voice. But they, they would take it as anger toward them. They took it personally. Because they stopped sympathizing Long ago. They stopped wanting to comfort him. Long ago. As soon as he said something that they didn't agree with or didn't like, they took an offense. And now they're on the attack. That's what Bildad is. He says, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place? In other words, Job, look. You're trying to convince us that this is happening to you, and you're righteous. But you see, that goes against the way things are. You're asking God to abandon the way he set up the universe. You're asking God to abandon the way he's, he's orchestrated everything. We know, Job, that the righteous are blessed and the wicked are punished. We know that. But you're asking God to turn that all upside down and go about it another way. We just don't agree with that, Job. But they weren't right. Because Job is a righteous man and he was suffering greatly. Paul was a righteous man. He suffered with a a messenger of Satan in his side for his entire ministry. There are many people who are righteous people who suffer immense pain. And a lot of the wicked people, they just get off scot-free until... They have to face the final judgment. So all Bildad does is attack Job. Then he begins to accuse him. Verse number 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened, and his lamp goes out above him. Bildad is addressing the miserable condition of wicked people. Your light's going to go out. Job, your light's about to go out. And darkness is going to consume you. Verse 7. His vigorous stride. This is the wicked man. His vigorous stride is shortened. Vigor stride is shortened, excuse me. And his own scheme brings him down. This is what happens to the wicked man, Job. And this is you. There was once where your, where your stride was strong and and, and long, and, and when you walked, you walked with pride and strength. But now, now everything is shortened because you just can't do it anymore. You've lost your strength. You've lost your vigor. You've lost the ability to be strong. Why? Because you're wicked. That's why. You can't do it anymore, Job. And is it your own scheme, your own craftiness, your own twistedness, your own wickedness is bringing you down. And I'm not sure how much lower you can go, Job, except in the grave. He says in verse number 8, he talks about his, his wickedness and trapping him, for he is thrown into the net by his own feet, and he steps on the webbing. A snare seizes him by the heel, and a trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground, and a trap for him on the path. The fate is inescapable. No matter where you go, no matter where you step, no matter where you're at, you're going to be caught in a trap. Why? Because of your wickedness, your fate is inescapable. Job, you're going down. This is the guy who came to comfort him. This is the guy who came to, to sympathize with him. Verse 11: All around, terror, terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. His strength is famished and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent. And they march him before the king of terrors. The king of terrors is death. It's the king of all terror, right? Hebrews 2 talks about how how Satan holds us bondage by the fear of death. That's the ultimate terror in life. He talks about Job's calamity. He talks about him being his skin being devoured by a disease. Job, you're going down the path of all wicked people. This is what happens to them. Until you get to the king of terrors, death itself. Verse 15. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. Brimstone is scattered on his habitation. His roots are dried below and his branch is cut off above. In other words... Because the root is destroyed, the branches are destroyed. Brimstone being scattered on his habitation speaks of the fire coming down upon Job's home. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. This is what happens to the wicked. Their memory's gone. There's no name, no reputation left. But that's not Job, see? He's characterized Job wrongly. Job's memory will continue. We're reading about Job now, right? James talks about the patience of Job. Even the world talks about the patience of Job. And they have no idea who Job is. They call him Job. The book of Job, right? They don't even know who Job is. But it's all right there, you see? The memory carries on. Why? Because his name is a great name. Speaking of his character, it's great. He is driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. In other words, wicked men are banished from this place. He has no offspring or posterity among the people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. In other words, Job, you've lost it all. All your kids, your legacy, it's gone. There's no one there to follow you, Job. It's over. Those in the West, that is, those who have gone after him, are appalled at his fate. And those who are in the east, who have gone before him, are seized with horror. When the observer sees, this is their reaction. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. That's how Bill that ends. In other words, Job, this is how it ends for the wicked. This is what's happened to you. Guess what, Job? Conclusion, you probably don't even know who God is. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Only that which is good and edifying to those who hear. That you might minister grace to them. They had a great intention when they started out. But when Job didn't see things the way they saw him, saw them, they became angrier and angrier at Job. They just couldn't get him to see their side. They, they were the ones who, who they just could not listen to his pain. They could not hear his pain because they were so preoccupied with their own reputation that you're calling us stupid, you're calling us worthless physicians. They're more concerned about their reputation than Job's condition. They're they're more concerned about Job seeing things their way than really understanding the way things are with Job in reality. So sad. So sad. Now, Job... He'll respond to this, and we'll look at it next week in chapter chapter 19. But as he sits there, I can't help but think about the spirit of Bildad living today. That same spirit, that judgmental, condemnatory, critical attitude, filled with anger and malice, bitterness and wickedness, being spoken toward others, it it surfaces in those closest to us. It surfaces in our our marriages, in our conversation with our our spouse. That's where the the spirit of Bildad rises up to its highest point. We can become very critical of husband or wife. We can become very critical of our children or children of their parents. And we can begin to pass judgment on them, not really knowing all the situation before them. Happens with parents to children, coaches with their teammates, doctors and physicians with their patients teachers with their students. Very easy to be critical of the way things are. Instead of really trying to understand, why are things this way? Why have you responded this way? How can I sympathize with you and your situation? Help me understand what you're going through, what you're thinking, what's happening with your emotions. Let me know. Let me in so somehow I can minister grace to those who hear. So important. Now, if Bildad really believed that Job didn't know God, this is the wrong way to handle it. If you really believe that that Job didn't know God and just didn't want to use it as a a put-down, He'd really sit back and think, you know what, Job? I'm concerned about your relationship with with the living God. Let let me talk to you about about our God. That wasn't his approach. Not at all. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says, I think it's Luke chapter 4. Yeah, Luke chapter 4, verse number 22. Luke writes, All bore witness and wondered at the gracious words of, which proceeded out of the mouth of the Messiah. The gracious words. A great study is to do Christ's interaction with the unbeliever all throughout the Gospels. His interaction with them is different than the unbelieving Pharisees, the the legalists, the ritualistic people. It's different. Because he talks to them in a way that helps them understand their condition. And even with the rich young ruler, when he, when he walked away, the Bible says that the Lord felt love for him in his heart. Because he did. He had compassion. Matthew chapter 9, he looked at the multitudes. And as he saw the multitudes, he had great compassion for them. As he rode into Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem knowing their spiritual condition. And if Bildad was really concerned about Job not knowing God, he had the classic opportunity to begin to present the true and living God to him. First of all, by modeling to him a God-like response to his condition. And then speaking to him as God would speak to him about his eternal soul. But he didn't do that. Not at all. He just wants to lash out at Job and just say, this is the end of the wicked person who don't don't know God. And Job, this is where you're at. And so the conclusion is, you don't know God either. Not trying to help him understand who God is. As you think about this, I, I think of the fact that that it's imperative that, that we do come to know God, right? That we come to know Him in a, in a way in which He is known in Scripture. I thought about that, and I thought about how well do we know God, right? I told you before there there are four principles in life that, that should govern everything you do. I'm going to give them to you again. I gave them to you earlier in our, in our series. I gave them to you during our Study of the book of Daniel, but it's this. To be is always more important than to do, right? Who I am is always more important than what I do. So to be, character, is always more important than what I do, conduct. The number two is what happens in me is always more important than what happens to me. What happens in me is always more important than what happens to me. Because God is at work in my heart continually. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Even though the external man is fading away, the the internal man is being renewed day by day. So what happens in me is more important than what happens to me. That's number two. Number three, being faithful is more important than being successful. And number four, knowing God is more important than knowing anything or anyone else. Knowing God is more important than knowing anything or anyone else. Knowing God is everything. And Job knew his God. Did he understand everything about God? No, he didn't. But for a man who didn't have theology books, for a man who didn't have a Bible, okay, for a man who didn't have great Bible teachers, he knew a lot about his God. And that's evident by his testimony. We'll see it again next week when he knows that his Redeemer will stand on the earth. His Redeemer lives. That next week, so he knows he has a redeemer. He knows he will stand on the earth. He knows that his redeemer lives, so he understands probably a death and a resurrection of the redeemer. He understands something. But the fact of the matter is, is that every one of us needs to be in the process of getting to know our God. So I thought about this, and I and I wrote some things down, and you know we. We say that we know that God is love. If that's the case, why are our lives so insecure? That's a good question. If we truly know that God is love, and that love is an unconditional love, why is my life so insecure? Could it be that I really don't know the God who is the God of love? If I know that God is is all wise, that God is wisdom, he's given me the spirit of wisdom, then why is it I act so foolishly all the time? That's a good question. Do I really know the wisdom of God? If I say that I know the power of God, that he's omnipotent, that he's the almighty God, the, as the New Testament calls him, the Pantocrator, as the Old Testament calls him, El Shaddai, the almighty God. Why is it I live in so much fear? If he is almighty, he is all-powerful, he's the creator of heaven and earth, why is it I would even begin to fear anything anyway? But we do. So I ask myself, how well do I know my God? If I believe that God is all-knowing, that is omniscient, then why is it I don't know where to go tomorrow? And God knows. If God is omniscient, why is it I don't know what decision to make? If God is awesome, which he is, why do I live as if he's insignificant in my life? If God is forgiving, why is it I find it so difficult to forgive others? Do I really understand the forgiveness of God? And that's always a a tough one because whenever we put our series of forgiveness on the radio, it is the number one listened to spot and always people want to hear more they want cds they want how can they listen to this again and again and again because forgiveness is important tenderheartedness kindness and forgiveness but if we do believe that god's a forgiving god and god forgives me of all my sin why is it i have a hard time forgiving other people do i really understand god's forgiveness Do I really understand how he's forgiven me? And if I truly believe that God is sovereign and know him as sovereign, why is it I murmur and gripe and bellyache all the time when things go awry? Those are good questions. Just very practical questions. Questions that, that would help us to understand that I need to somehow know more about my, of, of my God. Because I want to live for my God. See, the more I know my God, the more He rubs off on me, right? The less I know Him, the less He rubs off on me. Knowing God is not about an intellectual awareness of God. Everybody's got that. Everybody knows there's a God who exists. They might not know His name, but they know there's a God, there's a Creator. They understand that. So it's not about an intellectual awareness. It's not about gaining a whole bunch of information about God. I know a lot of people who have a lot more information about God than I do, but they don't even know who God is. It's all about how God rubs off on you. It's a confirmational thing. He conforms you to His image. When you know God, you talk like God. You respond like God. You speak like God. You just follow God. Now, you do it perfectly? No, none of us does it perfectly. But there's this ever-increasing growth in my life where I'm beginning to look more and more like my God. I'm beginning to to be able to speak more and more like my God would speak because I know who He is, how He responds and, and what He says. You see, the problem with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz is they really didn't know God very well, and they thought they did. <laughs> and the guy they thought didn't know God really did know God intimately. See, and they wanted to condemn him because, in their minds, they he didn't know the God. They knew like they thought they knew him. But they really didn't know him. Not very intimately at all. So when Paul is in that Mamertine prison in Rome, just about to be, be killed, he asked for Timothy to send the scrolls, to come, to come to him quickly, come before winter, and bring the scrolls and the parchments. Why? Because of the depth of his heart, oh, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul, you're going to die next week. Relax, dude. You're going to be in his presence. You don't know everything then. No, bring the parchments. Bring the scrolls. Because I need to know more. I need to feed more. I need to learn more. I want to learn all I can before he takes me home to be with him. That's the way it should be for us, right? A longing, being driven to the Word, to hear the Word spoken, to read the Word written, and to be able to understand all that my God is. My prayer for you and and for me is as we come to know God, there'd be less and less unwholesome words that come from us. And more and more wholesome words. Good words. Kind words. Tender-hearted words. So we can minister grace to everybody around us. I wonder what the ash sheep would have looked like had Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz had that mentality throughout their conversations. Probably a lot different than it does in chapter 18. But Job... Job will respond, as he always does, patiently articulating his belief in his God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. What a joy it is to be able to to look into the Word of God. As we gather together in the middle of the week, we realize, Lord, that it's a few more days until Sunday, first day of the week. We're making it through until we get to the end of this week. And our prayer, Father, is that the word spoken, the word preached from the book of Job and the book of Ephesians, would be a word that would touch us all, move us and motivate us to live for the glory of our King, that we might give glory to your name every day. Lord, go before us. We don't want to converse with others like like Bildad does. He's so brutal. So unkind. May we with kindness and tenderness and forgiveness speak to those round about us that they would know the true condition of our heart. We don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. Not at all. We want to please the Spirit of God. So may the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Be at home in our hearts. So when we open our mouth, Your words, God's words, the Word of God comes out to minister grace to those who hear. In Jesus' name.